from the 2005 Kenyan Commencement Address, This is Water, by David Foster Wallace. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over things to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny school-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. 
The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Hinterling, and you're listening to Watch This List. I just finished my second viewing of Abel Ferrer's The Addiction, made in 1995, written by Nicholas St. John. I watched it the first time in 2021, and it struck me very differently than than it did this evening, probably because I was not conscious myself the first time I saw it. And I thought it was so profound and pretentious in all the right ways and nostalgic because it reminded me of being in graduate school and it reminded me of intellectualizing and distancing concepts from myself because I tried to make them make sense instead of feeling them which is just both a faulty coping strategy and a defense mechanism. But this evening, what struck me most was one aspect of the film that happens multiple times. Kathleen is our main character who's a graduate student. She's turned into a vampire. And then before turning others into vampires and acting on her compulsion, she tells her victims to tell her to stop to go away and that they don't want her and she'll go but they don't stop her some of them say please go but you get the sense that she senses that they don't actually want her to go and she starts to resent them for this and say that it's actually their fault that they're victims because a part of them welcomes the evil in and then she's just there to oblige when the victim in the library says doesn't this affect you at all she says no and that she isn't any worse than she was before why didn't you say get lost like you meant it that's what she says It made me think of how I have a thought to act on something I know is wrong, whether it's gossip or a lie or something bigger than that. And I have a choice then 
I can act on it or I can let it be a passing thought. And when I act on it, I don't think about this normally, but it is actually allowing the allure of the temptation to make rational sense because I don't think I do anything that doesn't make sense to me, at least at the time. So doing something that I willingly know is wrong isn't just participating in evil or at least a distorted, damaging, self-destructive habit. It's also enjoying it. There's a preferential inclination going on. And when it's externalized in the fashion that it is, in the addiction as horror, as that evil is indifferent to us, to the characters, that it doesn't care about them in any way whatsoever except to use their good for sustenance, as Christopher Walken's character says. I'm using your good for sustenance, making her so much weaker and feel like she hasn't eaten for days. If we think about our destructive behavior as being a leech on us that's sucking the life out of us, perhaps we would pause a little bit longer and think, what am I agreeing to? Because temptation is always dressed up as attractive and pleasurable and rewarding even that you'll feel relief or reach some sort of peace of mind at the end. But even when we've proven otherwise over and over again, it's still difficult to resist, isn't it? Why? Why is it difficult to resist something painful? How can a shift in consciousness take place? Do we have options? Do we have a choice? Something that struck me that I read in the Ferreira interview was, well, I'll just read the quote to you. He says, No matter how dark things get for this woman who becomes a vampire, she accepts the body of Christ. She is capable of changing. That's the difference between the script that Nikki writes and the script that I write. I had no idea that you could change or that it was even an option, especially at that point. 
but she takes the light. Again, this whole Christ is a literary device thing. Nicholas St. John is a Christian. The notion is very real to him. For me, it was hard to see the light when I was mired in the darkness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which reminds me of when I first saw this in 2021. <laughs> that I was still mired in the darkness. But there are these glimpses of consciousness sometimes that happen even in denial or well put in the guise of having fun because I was having fun at the time or thought I was you can get these slivers of maybe there's more than this place I'm stuck in and maybe I don't actually enjoy it as much as I think but I have no earthly idea on how to stop and the thought of giving something up that makes me like myself or gives me some sort of identity that I enjoy is impossible So then what has to happen? Nicholas St. John says that the reason he chose vampirism as a metaphor for evil is that he felt like it was symbolic of evil that lurks in all of us and only has to be awakened. As the vampire says at the end of the movie, which Ferreira and St. John go against is that we do evil because we are evil but Kathleen takes communion and confesses and she is not doomed to that which implies that they don't actually believe that they have a character say it but they don't believe it what St. John is saying is that we have a character who is well educated who should know better who should be wise, who falls prey to the same evil instincts as everybody else. He says, quote, we don't seem to learn, and I wrote a line to that effect for our vampire. We just go around and around, and we never seem to learn. And then to come back to David Foster Wallace, the kind of freedom that's the most precious involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over. Back to Ferreira, he says that you got to get outside yourself. You can't just walk around thinking the only thing that counts is me. You've got to think about something other than yourself. So. How can we possibly summon the resolution and the willingness to get rid of such overwhelming compulsions and desires? I think that ends up being the question for me from the film. 
there's a lot going on. There's being and nothingness and philosophizing and <laughs> there's things that annoy people about this film in the way that it's done and it's sort of artsy, indie, slow burn, sermonizing. And it is cold. It's detached. Kathleen says things like, prove to me evil doesn't exist. I'm rotting inside but not dying. It's about getting a fix. It's about the violence of our wills against others. But to me, where I am now, there are two choices. We can choose between the pains of trying to become better, trying not to live in our default setting and operate out of unconsciousness and blurry vision and a self-centered existence. And there's the path of the penalties of failing to do that. What our life will be if we are on default. How much compulsion are we slaves to? What do we want to stop but can't? Where do we go to find peace? Kathleen says, the fact that you can't terminate the situation finally settles on you with full force. And then you reach enlightenment. And you either want to die or you try to go to evil as your sponsor like she does. She tries to go to Christopher Walken's Pena character and say, help me, teach me. And he's like, I can't help you. I'm not going to do anything for you. In fact, he just ends up draining her even more and then talking about how he's becoming more and more normal by the day, but he's completely doomed. The only peace that she finds in the end is going to God. One thing that's interesting is that Brad Stevens writes about in his book, um, Abel Ferreira, The Moral Vision. There's a chapter on the addiction. That vampirism in the movie has much the same function as the hotel in The Shining. Quote, bringing to the surface potentialities already present in the protagonist. And I wonder, in the vein of Foster Wallace, 
if we think about our daily realities, how much of what we're experiencing in our direct atmosphere is just bringing to the surface things that are already already within us because oftentimes I find myself reacting to situations in the exact same way that I did yesterday because a lot of the situations I'm in are reoccurring. So why be so obsessed and preoccupied with getting angry that circumstances aren't changing when they're just a reflection of how I'm handling them. Because when I change, and I have changed, reality does shift. And I know this is true. I know that if I'm more patient, with my family members. They're more patient with me. If I respond instead of react, they can pause and have a safe space to do the same. The more humility I have, the more I realize that not everything, in fact, is here to satisfy me. Not everything is here for me to use and drain the life out of. Then I can accept kindness and maybe even guidance or advice. And there is a shift. There is a change. And I think that Kathleen wants to change because as soon as she meets the missionary, the guy who's preaching and handing out pamphlets in front of her apartment, he's the only one that doesn't come up, who doesn't allow himself to be invited in because he's he's not remotely interested. She goes in her closet and absolutely loses it and says that she won't submit. Like she's trying to fight her basest instinct and in saying, I'm not going to try to get this guy anymore. I know that he's pure. He's the only innocent person there is. And she recognizes that and doesn't want to destroy it, which is interesting. And that is the shred of humanity that's still within her. That's not the evil. The evil is merciless. The evil wants to feed on the good. Just as Pina says, I want the goodness that's left in you for my sustenance so that you can lay there and feel like you haven't eaten in days. And isn't that what it feels like to be in cycles of bad habits and bad relationships, situations that make you feel like shit at the end of them? Not when you're in them or you're getting the attention that you crave or whatever it is that we want that indulges. It's at the end that you feel so small and useless and alone. Because the thing that's using you 
will never nourish you. It's not there for you. It doesn't have the capacity to give you peace. And you know that. And I know it. Henry Cloud says the worst thing you can do when you find out that you're on the wrong path is hope that it turns into the right one. That's why she says, say no to me. Look at me and tell me to go away. Don't ask. Tell me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's so much advice and good advice about how to live, how to be happy, how to lose weight, how to <laughs> make your life better in whatever way it is that you're particularly seeking. But I think that happiness is a lot simpler than we realize when happiness is equated with serenity and peace of mind. Peace of mind comes when the thing that destroys you is resisted and you can resist it. You can choose to resist it and then get help to continue resisting. That's what I've learned. And that's, that's what I know for sure now. And I'm not afraid anymore like I used to be. I used to be afraid of saying that I believed in God or that I was a Christian. Even in my review for the diction in 2021, I was afraid to say that I had grown up in church and nobody even read me then at all. There's a fear of being vulnerable and authentic because if people reject your persona, you can say, well, obviously that's not who I am. And so I don't have to take it personally, although we still do. But to put yourself in the situation where you can be rejected, well, it's only brave if you're afraid. But if we can get to the point where we're no longer living for fixes and we aren't seeking out things that don't satisfy, that courage gets strengthened day by day bit by bit, small everyday decision after small everyday decision 
just like David says, sacrificing for others over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. These small things that we can do for one another. Responding kindly. Not getting into a dumb argument. As the facilitator in the work says, let's keep this where it belongs, not where it can go. Removing yourself from a situation that you know could escalate. Not doing what you know is wrong. Not lashing out. But all these things feel good. Greed feels good. Lust feels good. Self-righteous anger feels really good. Acting superior to other people feels good. But where does it get you? It gets you negotiating with evil or trying not to be the same. And then you get bitten because you didn't say no. And then evil says that it's your fault. And you're the one who made that decision. But even then, we can choose. And that's what Ferrer is ultimately saying. It surprises him, and he didn't see it at the time. That we have an ability to choose. When desires drive us blindly, or we willing, willfully demand that they supply us with more satisfactions or pleasures than are possible or do us, that's the state that we're in. That's the problem. No matter how far we progress, desires will always be found which oppose grace. So what's the solution? We make a beginning and keep trying come to grips with some of our worst defects and take action towards their removal as quickly as we can. We become able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. <laughs>